evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, on behalf of the Air Power Group for the Royal Animal Society, um, could I welcome you for this evening? Um, a really good turnout. Uh, clearly, from the ties in evidence, um, well supported by a uh, like-minded clan. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you've already had the opportunity, and many of you will know the CV uh, for Admiral Tom Cunningham. Um, these are difficult times for any of the UK services, I think, uh, and particularly the Fleet Air Arm. As, to put it politely, some of the decisions made in the SDSR probably have at least a questionable effect on coherency and cohesion in the maritime environment. Um, who better then to lead the Fleet Air Arm in these times than someone who is an aviator with significant um, and very relevant command experience who has a strong background and understanding of the acquisition and support processes to actually make the defence buck deliver the effect it needs, um, and also has considerable experience of uh, the Byzantine ways of the main building uh, and navigating the politics around. Ladies and gents, uh, Admiral Tom has all of those in his CV in abundance, and therefore it's, I very much welcome him to present to you today on Maritime Air Power. Thank you very much, Simon. I'm delighted you used the word I had experience of the Byzantine working. doesn't mean you understand it any better. You just get more experienced. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today on Maritime Air Power, a wonderful title, because I could talk about absolutely anything I chose up here today, really. And so... Even with that wonderfully rich scope, I thought I'd introduce my talk by talking about battleships. Because there's never a bad time to talk about battleships if you're a naval officer. <laughs> and if we go back to the late 19th century, uh, the UK and Germany, with the, the dear old Kaiser, were in a war race. And that was when the battleship emerged. Officially recognized by the Navy only in 1892, battleships were famously championed by the then first sea lord, the renowned Admiral Sir Jackie Fisher. A particularly focused individual, not overly blessed with um, a lack of confidence or humility. Um, he was indeed accused of being a warmonger. Uh, while he was attending the Conference of War Limitations at The Hague in 1899, and Sir Jackie rather wonderfully uh, responded that he was not a warmonger. He was indeed for peace. But, he said to people... If you let it be known that you are ready at a moment's notice to set about your enemy with all your might, to hit the first blow, to kick him in the belly when he is down, to boil his prisoners in oil, should you choose to take any, and then torture his women and children, people tend to stay away from you. <laughs> I suppose they would. However, just to show that the dawning of political correctness was not dead, barely a year later, the American president... Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, obviously feeling the same, but feeling somewhat more constrained, put it somewhat differently when he said, speak softly and carry a big stick. It lacks something of the impact. But that quote alone is sufficient to talk, to introduce a talk about battleships. But just to reassure you, there is an aviation thread somewhere in this talk. And I mentioned battleships for a good reason. 71 years ago this Friday night, uh, 21 swordfish aircraft of 813, 815, 819 and 824 naval air squadrons launched from the carrier HMS Illustrious and attacked the Italian fleet in Taranto Harbour. 
There were many ships in the fleet in harbour, but significantly there were three battleships. During that attack by 21 swordfish for the loss of two aircraft and two crew, uh, two battleships were sunk and the other put out of action. In effect, the Italians lost their maritime advantage in the Mediterranean. Admiral Cunningham, Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean at the time, noted that Taranto on the night of November 11, 12, 1940 should be remembered forever as having shown once and for all that in the fleet air arm, the Navy has its most devastating weapon. Of course, only a year later, the president of Taranto was repeated at Pearl Harbor, and by then, the era of the battleship as a primary instrument of sea power was consigned to history. After only 50 years, it was replaced by the aircraft, and the age of maritime air power was born. It is somewhat poignant, therefore, a third reason for mentioning battleships, that my office at Whale Island sits on the site of the origin of naval aviation. Because when the battleships were being built at the end of the 19th century, the docks were not big enough to take these dreadnoughts, and they excavated those old uh, docks, and the extra earth they had, they dumped on this small island in Portsmouth Harbour called Whale Island, which made it where, actually, just out of interest, the Navy used to keep a zoo for some perverse reason. <laughs> Again, before political correctness prevailed, it was the done thing to bring strange animals back from the far parts of the world, and without any quarantine, just dump them on this island in Portsmouth Harbour. But anyway, the excavated soil made this zoo somewhat bigger, so that more than the animals could fit on there, and they threw a few of us naval officers as well. Couldn't tell much difference, you will say. No. <laughs> But it was on that island in the first decade of the uh, um, uh, 20th century that one Sam Cody, who was involved heavily in the creation of the Royal Flying Corps, did the Navy's first balloon trials, and it was there that the inception of naval aviation was born. So in a perverse sort of way, it was the battleships themselves, their, their creation created the birthplace of naval aviation and the being that bizarrely went on to subsume their very existence. It was an interesting time because although it was recognized that the air offered potential advantage to a navy and indeed to the army at the time, there was little clarity as to how and numerous different interpretations of how to use this new capability. Early aspirations, of course, particularly in the airship days, were for reconnaissance and search capability. Although interestingly, when the first aircraft went to sea, Churchill, by then First Lord of the Admiralty, was absolutely adamant, as usual, he and Jackie Fisher got on very well, not, uh, and directed that these aircraft, even then very expensive, were not to be used for anything other than to attack hostile forces. He didn't make clear how they meant to find them. Quickly, though, naval aircraft were delivering weaponry, weaponry against land targets, against airships, and against ships at sea. Aircraft became both an offensive and defensive element of a fleet permeating every single aspect of naval warfare, from logistics through communications, I-star to weapon delivery. Maritime air power came to capture the notion of power from the sea, but it is also, also both power at sea and very much more so than its predecessor, the battleship, a critical integrated element of a complete fleet at sea. But this was all learned in stages, quickly and without any great direction. It was joyous. In May 1909, the Admiralty ordered their first airship, again championed by the still irrepre irrepressible Jackie Fisher, and that airship, the Mayfly, sadly went on to give an early demonstration of the hazards of mixing aviation with the sea, 
when she was destroyed early, very early in her life during a birthing manoeuvre due to the combined effect of a high sea state and a gusty wind, a telling omen. However, by 1911, the Admiralty was following the lead of the Army and pursuing heavier-than-air vehicles. And at the same time as the USN, we seriously started to take forward the concept of maritime air power. The UK and US navies took aviation to sea in the pre-war years, and although the first flight from a ship at anchor was undertaken by the Americans, thereafter many aviation firsts were achieved by the UK, propelled ahead, of course, of the USN by the imperative of World War I. In 1912, the first launch from a ship underway, Lieutenant Sampson, one of the first four Navy pilots trained, of whom more later, Sampson, 1914, the world's first ever strategic bombing raid from three Royal Naval Air Service Avril 104s bombed Zeppelin sheds. They didn't like Zeppelins. 1914, again, the first attack on a shore target by aircraft from ships at sea. And in 1915, the UK's first airborne Victoria Cross when Sub-Lieutenant Warneford dropped bombs on top of a, a Zeppelin he managed to get on top of. And in 1915, the world's first airborne torpedo attack. 1916, the first use of an aircraft in a sea battle at Jutland. And in 1918, the first aircraft carrier, HMS Argus. And in the same year, the first shore attack by aircraft launched from a carrier, carrier strike from HMS Furious. So in those hectic few years of the First World War, things motored forward. Since then, the UK has also led in the development of maritime air power. The first ships designed as an aircraft carrier were from the UK, the Royal Navy, first rotary wing deck landing, First British airborne kill in World War II was from a carrier. The first all-aircraft naval attack in history at Taranto. Jet landings, helo flights, the helicopter lift of assault troops was a UK first, and of course the first global deck landings. And all of those achievements were enabled by UK technical innovation. The aircraft carriers themselves, angled decks, steam catapults, arrestor gear, mirrored landing sites, helicopter, oper- helicopter operations, stovel ops, and the ever-ugly ski jump, all invented by the United Kingdom. So the UK, more than any other nation, has pioneered maritime air power. It's very clear from those that use of air power in the First World War that it has never been constrained to effect at sea. Indeed, as in any other use of the sea, militarily it is used to assert influence over the land. But it did not start like that as a clear strategy or a direction or a doctrine. There was much difference of opinion available at the outset, but the fledgling capability grew to fill the voids as they appeared. When in 1914 the Royal Flying Corps was rather surprisingly dispatched to accompany the British Expeditionary Force to France, the Admiralty was charged with sole responsibility for the air defence of the UK. The Navy, of course, already having a keen interest in protecting its dockyards, which were the targets of many attacks. Meanwhile, also in France, by somewhat devious means, I might add, a liberal interpretation of his orders that would have made even Nelson proud, or angry, depending which end of his command chain he was, the commander of the Royal Naval Air Service at the time, the aforementioned Lieutenant Sampson, now a squadron commander, had diverted his entire force into Germany, where he thought bombing was much more fun than fighting the air defence of the UK. Somewhat more bizarrely, he spotted another void and he opted to provide armoured car and three-pound gun-equipped lorry support to Allied forces, leading to the formation of 15 squadrons of such Royal Naval Air Service 
aeroplane support vehicles. What heady days. <laughs> All of this, though, was from land bases. But progress at sea was equally rapid. In 1918, aircraft from HMS Furious destroyed the two Zeppelins in their sheds at Tondern. And Royal Navy World War I aircraft also pioneered the use of torpedo and bombs at sea. Such that by the end of the war, the aircraft were such a fundamental part of operations that no fleet could seriously contemplate sailing without air support. By this time, no other nation had come close to matching the Royal Navy's understanding of naval aircraft and their potential to develop further either maritime air power or, for that matter, the value of armoured cars to future fleets, which sadly never caught on. As Eric Grove observed, was the Royal Naval Air Service at the time either an air force, a fleet air arm, or an armoured corps? I raise this because it's clear at the outset that just as on land there is an inherent ubiquity in air power, the sea simply offers more options. The interwar years, of course, are famously fallow. In 1918, the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps combined to form the Royal Air Force. And the UK entered a period where the doctrine of strategic substitution argued that large numbers of bombers would preclude the need for big fleets and big armies. Effect could be applied directly at the enemy's centre of gravity by strategic bomber bombing at a lower cost than fleets and armies. Of course, this caused more than a trifle of angst at the Admiralty, who now saw what it considered to be an absolutely vital component of the fleet coming under the control of another service. A service who, as Geoffrey Till put it, espoused a very different priority. Ironically, one pioneered by the wartime Royal Naval Air Service. Strategic air power, both offensive and defensive. Naturally, this became a fallow period in the development of maritime air power. The nation pursued a different strategy. And naval air underwent a period of significant underinvestment. Whatever the arguments for the effective attack on an enemy's sea of G... And the issue of strategic bombing did indeed generate a great deal of public debate, as it did in the Second World War. Other critical fleet warfare areas, such as anti-submarine warfare, for example, uh, declined rapidly. The USA and Japan surpassed the Royal Navy's early efforts in the development of maritime air power. And as World War II loomed, it was clear both that the doctrine of strategic substitution was insufficient, but so too was the aviation capability of the Royal Navy. And the tension between the Navy and the Air Force continued until a 1937 study by Sir Thomas Inskip, the Minister of Defence Coordination, recommended the fleet air arm return to full admiralty control. That saw the Second World War break with the Navy engaged in a full-scale expansion of the fleet air arm, with five aircraft carriers in commission, three undergoing trials, and some 200 frontline aircraft. But meantime, maritime air power elsewhere across the globe had forged ahead, <clears throat> dedicated aviation shipping and aircraft performed a full variety of roles within a modern navy, from intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, on, below, and above the surface, to also delivering lethality in each of those environments, as well as, of course, on land. So, too, did aviation enable the logistics that allowed fleets to operate at distance for protracted periods. The Royal Navy was catching up, and despite the valour shown on the day the venerable swordfish went into Toronto, it really was not the aircraft of choice at that time in history. However, with the Channel Dash, sinking the Bismarck, convoy protection, and a multitude of other events, the Navy quickly regrew its aviation capability. 
Indeed, the critical role played in the war in Europe by control of the Mediterranean was determined largely by the fleet's air arm, with the battles of Taranto and Matapan effectively critically disabling the Italian, naval, Italian Navy, while carrier air power became the key, key determinant in the control of the Mediterranean skies that was necessary to provide protection of the critical war convoys from uh, Axis air attack. When the carriers were not available, the losses were unbearably high. But in the Pacific too, many lessons were learned of a different type, as the British Pacific Fleet worked closely with the United States Navy in a war that was very much a naval and amphibious war to dislodge occupying Japanese forces. In this campaign, the Navy learned much, which is still uh, put into practice today. Much about the utility of a carrier air-supported amphibious force and that has stood us in good stead since the Pacific War until recent years. At the onset of the Second World War, the fleet air arm had consisted of 20 squadrons with 232 aircraft. By the end of the World War, the worldwide strength of the fleet air arm was 59 aircraft carriers, 3,700 aircraft, 72,000 officers and men, and 56 air stations. The aircraft carrier had replaced the battleship as the fleet's capital ship, and its aircraft were now strike weapons in their own right, and a lot of hard lessons have been learned. After the war, this powerful mix of aviation and amphibiosity, operating either together or separately, saw great utility between 1950 and 1982. In 1950, during the Korean War, it was again UK and US carriers delivering the early effect. In 1956 at Suez, it was UK and French carriers, and combined and carrier and amphibious groups were first to the fight in 1961 in Kuwait, again in 64 in Tanganyika, and they also conducted lower-level interventions in Zambia and Hong Kong in 65 and in Aden in 67. Then, of course, more recently, there have been significant maritime air power contributions to wider campaigns in the Falklands conflict, to Palestine in Sierra Leone, and the former Yugoslavia and in Gulf War II. Particularly in the post-war years, maritime air power has proved so useful because it can be prepositioned quickly and carries its own logistics. Not accidentally, just as does the Navy's amphibious capability with the Royal Marines and their amphibious shipping. These self-sustaining, high-readiness prepositioned forces offer attractive political options unconstrained by territorial restrictions. The high seas are a common from which fleets can poise, influence, deter, deny, or fight. Sometimes they are the only basing options available, but often they are just the spearhead of a wider campaign. Unsurprisingly, those developing nations that aspire to greater world influence all have carrier programs, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. They too want the flexibility to be able to influence world events wherever and at whatever scale they deem appropriate. Spain, Italy, Thailand, and to some extent now Australia, also aspire to a cap carrier capability at a lower level uh, than ours. But why is it taking these aspirational nations so long to develop the, cap the capabilities they want in carriers? Well, let's remember back to the Mayfly, the Navy's first airship, and its sad end destroyed in Portsmouth by the combined effect of wind and sea. Undoubtedly, the elements are one, but not the only scourge of the naval aviator. The sea brings one level of complexity, 
But the ships themselves bring another, and I would argue strongly that that is a much greater complication. The traditionally accepted way of managing high-energy events, be they either tangibles like aircraft or intangibles like high-powered transmitters, is to separate them in time and space. That is, of course, why Heathrow is so big and why the radar is set miles away from the runways and why we all sit in the stack at 7 o'clock in the morning waiting our time to land. We separate the events in time and space. But fuel is a valuable asset in modern aircraft that usually operate in packs, so time is a scarce commodity. And ships do not provide much opportunity either to separate events geographically. So the aircraft must all land very closely together in time and space and adjacent to other high-power radars and communications transmitters. And that is the real challenge. To operate aircraft safely while also operating your weapon sensors and communications. It is simply not feasible to do either or. A warship cannot just shut down its eyes, ears and claws because it is time to do some aviation instead. It must all be integrated together within that very confined space on a ship. It's interesting that when we take people to sea on American carriers, people are instantly seduced by the high drama of 20 tonnes of metal smashing onto the deck and hauling out that wire while the engines scream in full reheat in an attempt to get, re get airborne again. And it's wonderfully stirring. It's also impressive to watch them throwing them off the other end, accelerating to 150 miles an hour and 70-odd metres in a second or so. Fantastic, but largely irrelevant. But no one gets that. And when you walk into the aircraft control room of a big carrier, for some reason, the Americans always take you from the flight deck. And, of course, no one's remotely interested. Everyone stands there, and they're still watching the screen of the scene they just left and imagining the smell of kerosene and everything else up there in the wind. And they don't listen. Uh, it's fascinating to watch it all times I've done it. And, but yet, that is where the heart of the issue is. We can take a person off the streets and in a couple of years uh, teach them how to fly an F-18 to the deck of an American carrier. They do it. Uh, and there are thousands of people on this planet who can fly F-18s. <coughs> Unfortunately, the guy who's normally being ignored in the acro, uh, he is almost irreplaceable. It takes over 20 years' experience for him to be able to do his job, for him to be able to coordinate the things that happen with a group of 80 or 90 aircraft in the confined space of a ship with all the hazards of the other transmitters, to take them off the end of the wire when they land and have them ready to go on the catapult again for the next launch, to know where they have to go to get the necessary maintenance, to get the necessary rearming and the necessary fuel in the correct order, coping with the choke points, that is absolutely amazing. No software has yet been written to replace the men that do that. They use software, but it does not deliver what those guys can do when it goes wrong. These people, there's in the US Navy probably about 50 that can do that. Um, maybe few, maybe more. The interesting point is, whereas there are thousands of F-18 pilots, there's at least 10 times more astronauts on the planet than there are people who can do the ACRO's job. He is one of several people around the ship that are simply irreplaceable. And there is no, as yet, no remedy for the experience of what those people do in orchestrating 
what has to happen between that aircraft landing and getting it back on the catapult ready for the next launch safely. All of us could have a go at doing it dangerously. An example. Recently in Elemy, the uh, Apaches embarked on ocean. And we were talking to uh, people in the MOD, in one of the labyrinths, and they were saying how brilliant it was that we'd got Apaches on board Ocean uh, within a week. And they were out there doing the business. And, and I said, well, how long do you think it took to get the Apaches on board the ship? And they said, well, a week. It might have been shorter. And I said, well, you'd be surprised then to hear it was 13 years. And this is the difficulty. The planning for that Apache embarkation started actually 15 years ago with the signing of an agreement with the Army for the double-earmarked Apache squadron. Uh, it's taken a lot of trials because the Apache is not designed for sea, and to take an aircraft to sea which is not designed for it is actually inherently dangerous. And such things as the undercarriage's interaction with the rolling ship, the control moments with the head, and particularly helicopters are nauseating, I assure you. Uh, the behavior of the rotor blades in the Apache, they are not restricted in their upward movements. Why would they be? And so on a ship where you get big wind changes, we've seen Apache blades at 90 degrees, uh, uh, perfectly, totally vertical. Uh, the sad thing is that's all very elegant and wonderful, but when they come down again, there's no protection for that either, and it writes off the head. Similarly, these aircraft allow fuel to slush around in different places because that's what they wanted to do when it's in flight. Unfortunately, on a rolling flight deck, it is not very clever, especially if the aircraft's engaging or disengaging. So the technical issues are huge. They're just unseen. Similarly, all those bits in that aircraft are susceptible to the high radiation environment of a carrier flight deck. And the week that it took to get the Apaches on board was for no other reason than to check out and release the new weapons they were taking with them and to ensure that the fuses in those weapons were not susceptible to that electromagnetic area. It's a complex business. Similarly, by arrangement with the Army, uh, a third of the pilots in that squadron are Navy, so that when the guys go out there, they understand the peculiar processes of a carrier and can make sure that when people join, uh, they are briefed up and ready to operate from it. It takes a long time. Of course, what I'm doing now is talking us out of our future carriers because the UK has elected to go for the big new carriers, uh, which, as I've explained, is difficult enough usually, but enjoying an extra challenge, we decided to pay off our current ones in the meantime so that we can have a challenge. The, if it takes 20 years to build up those levels of experience, how do you do it when you haven't got a carrier and you've got an eight-year gap? Well, you can't unless you've got the assistance of our friends in uh, America and in France. We have core skills, and over the next eight, nine years, um, about 300 UK people will serve with the USN on board their carriers so that we can build on the core skills we already have uh, to sustain them through to the introduction of our own ships. If we didn't have the help, of the French and the Americans, we simply would not be able to do it. So with the QEC carriers and the Joint Strike Fighter, the UK will be back onto the big table with big carrier ops. As part of future combined carrier and amphibious task groups, they are likely to be just as busy 
as their predecessors have been since 1945, conducting influence, deterrence, coercion ops worldwide, transitioning into humanitarian assistance, neo, and direct intervention as required, but all the time exploiting the common use of the high seas, and their inherent qualities of persistence and self-sustainment. Hugely important that the unique attribute of maritime vessels is persistence and volume. Maritime air power as an integral part of these forces, a critical enabler and a potent weapon, offensively and defensively. The technical challenge remains immense. We're working with the Royal Air Force to introduce a joint combat aircraft, a fifth-generation fighter, and take to sea with an electromagnetic catapult, two technologies that no one in the world has ever done before, and we will be the second nation taking them to sea. Again, very high-risk uh, technical uh, aspiration, made feasible only by the assistance of the U.S. Navy. The reason we're not putting catapults into the first carrier is, although it would be exciting to do so, we would be doing it before the U.S. Navy. And that seems a pretty sort of charitable way of de-risking their own technology for them. And so deliberately, we will wait until they put it in the Gerald Ford and hopefully iron out some of the problems before we put it in Prince of Wales. And that's the reason why we're not doing it. The emails is advantageous, but actually to put steam in at this stage of the build would be almost Im not impossible, but hugely expensive. So we didn't have an option, really, but to go for emails and accept the technological risk. However, working up with the Americans and the rest of the world in this exciting new aircraft, taking a force to sea as we redevelop the entire maritime aviation outfit between now and 2016, re-equipping um, the Sea King force will go and re-equipping the Skazaks into a new component which will go into a Merlin airframe and that will go to sea as well with the new air groups, joint air groups by 2020. So as the world enters another phase of change, new globally aspirational powers emerging into a context of huge economic, climatic and demographic change, it's unsurprising that our strategic planners forecast friction and disputes and rarely on our doorstep. It is unsurprising, therefore, that the UK has committed to redevelop a maritime air power capability. History proves that it is unparalleled in providing flexible options to uncertain situations worldwide. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom, for a, um, a masterful uh, cruising across the problems without um, addressing anything too directly, which I think is a, an art that's <laughs> required for MOD officer. <laughs> However, I suspect you might not get off quite so easily in questions. Um, so I'll throw the floor open at this stage uh, for questions. Stuart Matthews, fellow of the Society. We heard a lot about the pilots. You're going to have to wait till you get aircraft. But what about UAVs in the meantime, or in fact beyond? No, absolutely right. I mean, we're, we are way behind the drag curve on UAVs. And um, 
the great advantage of almost accidental, but not quite, the great advantage of the QEC design is that once you put the emails into it and you have the opportunity to put a ramp back on, uh, and of course that design work is done, all the structural pieces there, uh, you have a platform that's ideally suited to UAVs. Uh, emails attractive because unlike steam, you can bend it up a ramp. And uh, we see that way before the end of its life, uh, the QEC will largely be operating unmanned vehicles. If it's not, we'll have failed as a nation because that technology will be there halfway through its life. Thank you. Um, having, having economized on time and not said too much about ships that carry a single helicopter uh, in support of their duties, um, I have heard it said that naval architects design ships as marine objects and that the poor old helicopter test pilot has to put the helicopter on the ship and constrain the operating envelope uh, as an aftermath. In other words, the, the, the carriage of the helicopter on the destroyer or whatever is not integral to the naval architect's task, which makes it interesting, to say the least, for the test pilot who's set, setting the operating envelope for the helicopter. Is that entirely true? Well, I'm delighted to hear that naval architects do design something. Even if it's just a ship, but um, it wasn't always immediately apparent to me, I have to say. But... Uh, no, we're not as good as it is as we should be, to be honest. I mean, you know, I could regale you with stories about naval architects. In fact, when I was commanding a destroyer, I used to insist one was at sea with us all the time. So I had someone to poke. And, uh, uh, it, and it was not easy to lose your temper every day. I mean, I must tell the story, going to the bridge one morning, and it was remarkably quiet as we were going into harbour. And uh, you can immediately sense something's wrong. So you sit there and try and work out what it is. And you realize you can't see anything out the windows. They've all misted it up. And it's still deathly quiet. So you say, uh, uh, navigator, turn on the windscreen heaters. So he says, uh, aye, aye, sir. Officer watch, turn on the windscreen heaters. Aye, aye, sir. Uh, quartermaster, turn on the windscreen heaters. <laughs> aye, aye, sir. Boses mate, turn on the windscreen heaters. And this guy sort of wanders to the far corner of the bridge. And you hear no more. And so I think, I know what's going on now. So I go and look around the corner. And he's standing there going... <laughs> 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 and... Uh, it dawns on you, no one knows where the windscreen heater switch is. So I said, no, nah. they said, we're just sent for an MEM, uh, sort of a, an engineer, mechanic. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, we'll find it. So we waste our time, sort of nearly run aground and all that other boring stuff, uh, looking for the switch and finally admit defeat, get the MEM up. Where is it? He said, it's in the officer's baggage store, sir. I said, it's where? I said, show me. So you go down two decks and you go in, back, back half a compartment, into the centre of the ship, through a small hatch and then crawl through a kidney hatch and there's a huge on a wall with nothing on it except officers' grips. A huge big switch that says, uh, windscreen heaters. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway. Okay, what was the question? Or the, the naval design, the, the, you know, aviators in the room, you'll recognize it's generally rather boringly accepted. The best place to have the height indication is somewhere in the vicinity of the pilot. Naval architects don't feel so constrained. In Type 42 destroyers, it's conveniently put in the chart house, which is back. But the great advantage is the Navy loves shouting. So you can then have a sailor who can stand in the doorway looking in. And as you approach the shoaling ground, he can shout out the depth to you. It's a wonderful concept as you approach Heathrow that the air stewardess is back at the heads shouting up to the open cockpit door, 500 feet descending. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no... I'd take the point, but actually, um, go back to the point. The, yeah, landing on small ships, um, 
you know, as you know, it, it is it is fraught, and we don't make it easy for people. And in fact, we've done it again with the Type 45. I'm not sure how we've done it. Uh, we are looking back at it, back at it, and it's something we must get better at. Sorry, it was a very long. Oh, hi, Simon Falls. Can you tell me if you think we'll have enough escorts to be able to protect the carrier and do any other duties that might be expected to fall upon the Navy when it's in, please? Well, it's a very interesting question because escorts is a, is a term that grew up in the Second World War and uh, we've got used to it both in convoy protection and in task groups going around. Uh, we never have enough uh, frigates and destroyers, um, but interestingly, we have never been in recent years, and in recent years, I think back since the Falklands, in a position where we have tied anything other than an air defense destroyer to a carrier. Americans the same. Um, the threat just has not been there. The trouble is, that doesn't mean it won't be there in the future. But in the current situation, um, our problem is not that we wouldn't have enough frigates and destroyers to form a task group. It's that because they're so busy at the moment doing other tasks around the world, so-called peacetime tasks, we never get the lot together to rehearse the disciplines of working as a task group. So it's an issue we keep an eye on. Sir Robert Wall with Aviation Week. I wanted to touch, uh, get back to the point you made about the, the skills, especially the deck management skills of the assets. I guess also the flying skills. I mean, one of the problems with the U.S. arrangement to me seems uh, the U.S. carriers are still much larger than uh, than what the the Navy will be uh, here will be operating. So, how do you manage that transition, particularly since it looks like you'll only have two years essentially from getting the assets to being asked to be ready to deploy? How do you transition people to that new mentality of managing the assets on a much smaller deck? Well, quite helpfully, we're going to have proportionally fewer aircraft as well. So I would imagine perhaps we'll probably have more available space for aircraft the way things are going. Um, the, the thing with the... It's not the scale that worries me with the American model. The, the thing I always say to the Americans is there's one thing that we are always, without fail, better at than them, and that is being poor, because we've had much more experience... But they're about to get poor too. And so, you know, there's maybe we could do some sort of information transfer. But the, we've never really operated like the Americans because we've never been able to afford to. And uh, the American system on carriers has thrown manpower as a resource at difficulties they've had and gone along. We've managed our way around it different ways because we've always found manpower so expensive. My nervousness is that we'll have a lot of people in the Americans Navy, we will have to convert because we will have to, and you know we accept that if we're going to validate these things as safe to operate, there's only one group of people who have the capacity to help us do that, and that's the Americans, and therefore we need to demonstrate safety management to their model. Once we're up and running, I think we're going to have to detune it back to uh, ways which are more like the way we did it historically. But I sense the American Navy is going to have to as well, so it's an interesting one. You. Um, Richard Gardner, from, uh, I remember. Um, in, in the days when we had uh, Joint Force Harrier, uh, it was easy to imagine the uh, jointery aspect of that making a lot of sense, working up on uh, building in the experience from the Falcons, operating uh, light blue and dark blue together. 
uh, and eventually after the era of the, the Sea Harrier, um, having a, a completely joint force. But now that uh, the Navy is elected to go for the sea model and a traditional angle deck and catapult uh, um, mode of operation, um, could you give an indication of how the thinking is going in terms of prospects for jointry? Because one would have imagined that, backed up by what you say, the degree of expertise that you need to encourage and work up to have a, a carrier air group, even if you call it a tailored air group, um, it is, is pretty demanding. Uh, will it be possible to have, and what would be the logic for having this as a joint force as opposed to a, um, a, an organic naval manned um, force? Well, the, I must correct one thing. The Navy never opted for F-35C, I assure you. I mean, the decision to go for F-35C, um, of course, was part of getting rid of the current Harriers. And it faced us with this dilemma of going from nowhere to doing what no one's ever done before. And I mean, I've, at the time, I remember having this debate quite vociferously in the MOD, where everyone accused me of just being difficult, when I said, no one's ever done this before. Uh, and they said, of course they have, we've done it before. I said, well, they haven't. No one, when we, uh, in my office, the painting I keep up there is a, a Sopwith pub coming into land uh, in, years ago. Uh, with leather straps hanging underneath. And as it comes under wind, there's a bunch of naval officers and general people wearing their sort of day clothes, running after it, pulling it out of the air. Now, to go from there and managing that level of risk, developing it incrementally over the years, um, you learned a lot of lessons. And if you go to the period of the 60s and the 70s when we took jets to sea, the lessons were learned very fast and very hard. And we had a peacetime attrition rate uh, of lives that was similar to being in hostilities. But there was no one shooting at us. It was just learning the ropes. So it's a, it's a massive channel up there. So the Navy didn't decide to go. It's always been Joint Force. Since Joint Force Harrier, the aspiration is JCA will continue to be a Joint Force. And it will be manned by the Air Force and the Navy. And when not at sea, will operate from land. Uh, Barry Tonson Fellow, when we last had uh, uh, a significant carrier force, we also had a naval air department at the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Bedford providing uh, uh, enormous um, facilities and, and expertise in developing naval aviation with the jets at sea, etc. Are we going to be now to be totally dependent on the Americans? I think largely, yes, we will, because we'll be operating all American-built equipment in terms of the launch and recovery equipment will be American. Um, whether we want to keep our own training here or do it in the States, I don't know. I'd, I'd very much imagine that we'll see a lot more training happening in the States, maybe much like the French. Um, it, we just will not be able to afford to have, or why would we want to, have an indigenous capability to replicate training facilities on technologies that we will not be building. So I'd imagine we'll be going to the States. Uh, Peter Robbie, ADS UK. <clears throat> um, I'd like to ask a question about what your view is on the loss of MPA in uh, the protection of naval uh, operations. And if MPA should be resurrected, and I understand there are some discussions in the MAD whether or not it should belong to the Navy and not the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's a sore loss to everyone, the loss of the MPA, and it was certainly a gain. It was never 
It was, it was always, the Navy is always a strong supporter of MPA and will be a strong supporter of uh, getting something back in to fill that capability gap. I think that the, the arguments about who flew the MPA happened in 19, I can't remember where back, it was either in the late teens or the 30s, and uh, I can't see any appetite in the Navy for reopening uh, any uh, debate on that. Peter Bedford, um, like many people, I was uh, shocked or appalled, whatever the word is, when the decision was announced about a year ago to scrap Ark Royal and the Harrier Force. And, uh, of course, I couldn't help th think, but think during your very interesting lecture about how useful it would have been to have that, have that capability off the coast of Libya. But, obviously, we have, a, as you said yourself, about eight years now without a fixed-wing Royal Naval capability, and that carries with it, obviously, a level of risk. Just to play devil's advocate, and this is not my own view, but how would you justify to a financier that we can bear that level of risk for eight years and we then, after that point, we, we need those, that, that capability? How, how can we do without it and then we need it? No, it's, um, it was never my argument, but uh, <laughs> um, the, the fundamental issue was that the judgment was in maintaining a balance of capabilities given the amount of resource available and the money that was already committed into the future carrier force that we would get rid of the current one. I'm not sure um, what level of briefing went into that. Uh, I don't know. But what I do know is that the financial situation was and continues to be pretty dire. And, um, you know, we've lost MPAs... Uh, at least for a while, um, and we're all struggling to uh, get by. And unless the government was going to put a significant injection of money in, um, we wouldn't have been able to keep the carriers going. Um, on what basis they made the judgment that we take a gap, I don't know. I know the, the National Audit Office was doing a, a study into it. I haven't seen what they've said. I'm not sure it's published yet. Okay, can I just take uh, one more question, I think, conscious of time? Can we go in the... Richard Folks, um, fellow. Um, as I understand it, HMS Ocean is a commercial build, um, broadly speaking, and in comparison to HMS Ark Royal, it doesn't have the military um, build capabilities that Ark Royal does. When Ark Royal was taken out of service, I understand it just had a refit, and I heard it being described as in superb condition. Was there any debate about whether to keep Ark Royal and, and take HMS Ocean out of service? Um, and indeed, is, uh, have the new carriers um, got uh, a military build, or are they actually a more commercial build as well? It wasn't so much the the build quality was an issue. I mean, we, to, be, to be quite honest, we had issues with Ocean. I mean, she was a very cheap ship, and like most cheap things, she had very, very distinct cheap attributes, many of which we've managed to overcome uh, over the years. But the issue was, without the jets... Um, what was best for what you were going to do. And the trouble with the CVS, it is, unfortunately, poorly suited to amphibiosity. It doesn't have the troop routes. Ocean was designed for it. And so in terms of her fitting, uh, if you're going to be doing eight years of amphibiosity as your primary output, she's a much better platform for that. There was a discussion, would, it, would you balance that off? And it was my instinctive reaction when I heard this, was that we would get rid of Ocean 
accept the dilution in the amphibious capability uh, in exchange for maintaining some uh, ability to operate uh, jets. Because when I was the carrier group commander, we operated with the Americans, the U.S. Marine Corps. We had the French, sorry, the French, the Spanish, and the Italian squadrons embarked at the same time. We could have done that. And it looked very attractive, and we did the sort of work on it. And then it dawned on us that actually, without jets being there all the time, we wouldn't be able to certify to the incoming squadrons that we were fit to operate. We just couldn't put together a safety case because we couldn't maintain currency. Uh, and therefore, the chance that we'd sustain any ability was actually impossible. So it was better to optimize for the amphibiosity uh, once we understood that the Americans would help us maintain core skills and carry strike. Okay, can I just uh, say first and foremost, thank you very much indeed to Tom for, in particular, I think, for um, being very candid in the, the answer to questions. And it's, I think it's something, when you look at how, fleet, uh, how naval aviation has evolved and listen to the language, and even the language that was used even in the last question, um, and the fact that, first and foremost, even in warships, the safety certification drives our capability it's yet another evolution that has happened over the last probably eight to ten years in naval aviation that says maritime uh, air power is something that needs to constantly evolve. Clearly, I think there's a, a dead spot coming for us in the UK, but I think Tom has explained very clearly how the Royal Navy in particular and the UK as a whole is uh, mitigating that risk to see us through to make sure that we have a capability coming out of it. So I'd ask you to, uh, to join me in saying thank you to Tom. I have a small presenter to him for it. And I hope you'll join us for a little while afterwards so that people can bend your ear a little bit. Well, <laughs> as long as it takes. The engineers. As long as it takes. <laughs> Tom, thanks very much indeed. Thank you.